where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I am your host, Diana, and I am really excited for you to listen to this episode. This episode is basically a part two to my previous episode with Amy Geis, who shared with us the issue of children in preschool receiving assignments relating to classifying foods as healthy and unhealthy and how kids at that age are prone to black and white thinking and can interpret these assignments to mean that they should never have the foods in the unhealthy category or that they're being bad if they do want them. So this episode is actually a follow-up to that. One, because I think it is really important to explore how assignments rooted in diet culture show up, not only in preschool, but also in K-12. through um, Not because anyone listening necessarily has a high schooler. I mean, maybe you do, but I do mostly market this show to moms of much younger kids. But I imagine that you, listener, are a person who is interested in raising your young kids to be resilient to diet culture for the duration of their childhoods and beyond. And I think it's really valuable to see how these types of assignments might show up over the years for your kids and learn what you can do to participate in a culture shift so that your kids are learning about food in in a really positive and constructive way. And another reason that I really wanted to do a part two to Amy's episode is that today's guest is Gwen Costell of Dietitians for Teachers, which is a group that works to provide teachers with guidance and resources to interpret their curriculums to do exactly that, teach kids about food in a really positive and constructive way. And I have been so impressed with Gwen's work on Dietitians for Teachers and her expertise really shines through in this interview. So I also hope that this episode can provide more of a professional take on the issue of assignments rooted in diet culture in schools, while Amy Geis' episode provided more of the parent perspective. So my guest today is Gwen Costell, who is a dietitian based near Ontario, Canada. She is the driving force behind Dietitians for Teachers, as we will discuss, as well as a mom of two working full-time in another job, which I give her a ton of credit for. So as you know, the content on this show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice, and the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Gwen. Hello, Gwen. Welcome to The Messy Intersection. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to take the time to do this. Um, Why don't we start by, you know, you just tell me a little bit about yourself, your work, family, things like that. All right. Well, um, a bit of a squiggly story, but I am a dietitian, registered dietitian in Canada and Ontario. So I know you're in the States, but hopefully you guys are going to see how connected and overlapping it is. I'm a registered dietitian who's master's trained. I actually did my master's in BMI <laughs> um, oh. and, and how BMI didn't really work for a specific population of people with spinal cord injury. So the body image stuff's been with me for some time. I did my clinical training at a downtown Toronto urban hospital, amazing experience, but then my clinical practice landed me in family practice. So I had this beautiful opportunity to go from research to acute care and then right into family medicine where every issue from beginning of life, like new babies and breastfeeding and growth issues, all the way up to seniors care and sort of the end of life story, So I think that gave me a real appreciation for people and their stories and relationships, which I think really drives me as a dietitian. I'm a mom. Um, I do have two small kids, both elementary school age, which has been wild and interesting the last two years, but who hasn't it been for? And I guess the way to describe my dietetic style is I don't know that I've ever felt like a really dietitian-y dietitian. <laughs> so if there's dietitians listening, you may know what I mean. And I'll tell you a visual. I can remember sitting in, I think it was second year, but one of my undergrad nutrition courses of sitting there and listening and going to myself, uh-oh, butter versus margarine may not be my thing. I don't know if I can do this. This this may not be my thing. So I've always been a little bit of an outside the box thinker, 
which is probably explain why I kind of squiggle around a little bit. And in my day job, Diana, I actually do healthcare work bigger and broader than dietitians is actually support change and projects and how do we do things better, whether it's, you know, learning how to do virtual and phone care overnight for a whole system of physicians or whether it's hmm, how do we get these wait times down? And it's just added such an interesting perspective for me. That's fascinating. And that tells me a lot about why you might do what you do with your Instagram account, (laughs) Dietitians for Teachers, uh, which is an incredible resource. And just tell us a little bit more about what it's all about. Yeah. So Dietitians for Teachers started with a a really good friend and colleague of mine, Terry. So we started this project almost as a bit of an experiment, probably because we, we both think a little bit differently about people. And every year, every September, whether you're in a dietitian community or parent communities, you start to hear the stories about, oh gosh, you know, sugar-free schools or, you know, healthy snacks only. You start to hear stories coming out of schools. And the knee-jerk reaction, I think, for parents and dietitians is to say, oh, gosh, teachers don't know what they're doing, or that's not okay, or dietitians need to go and fix this, almost the savory kind of approach. And Terry and I, when we started, decided that that wasn't, that wasn't working. <laughs> it wasn't going to work. That's not how humans change anything. So Dietitians for Teachers started as a bit of an experiment on social media to say, what if we spoke right to teachers? And instead of criticizing or, you know, pointing out things that maybe aren't going well, what if we supported and lifted people up? And we say teachers in our name, but we really do speak to everybody who educates children. So we have a lot of parents who follow us. We have a lot of other dietitians who follow us. We have ECEs. That's a, I think that might be a Canadian designation, early childhood educators. We have those. We don't call them ECEs. Okay. (laughs) Daycare, uh, preschool people, homeschool families. So Yeah, we just sort of started and then it got a lot of traction and a lot of really engaging conversations. And so we've grown from there. Everybody needs to go and check out this Instagram account right now. It's dietitians number four teachers, but of course, I'll link to that in the show notes. And so as you are Canadian, you focus on when you, when you do talk about the way to adapt the Canadian curriculum for different grade levels, you're focusing mostly on, you know, the specific curriculum for Canadian educators, right? Um, have you gotten any feedback on the difference between the Canadian curriculum and what might, just because I know we have U.S. listeners here, what might be the differences in the U.S. or are there a lot of parallels? So there's more parallels than differences. So the first thing to say is there's no Canadian curriculum. We have provinces uh, and territories uh, similar to how the U.S. has states. So each province in, in Canada has curriculums, but we also have private schools that run differently in daycare streams. And so in Canada, what we know to be true is every province is different, just like every state is going to be different. And so while, yes, we speak to Ontario probably the most because that's where we live and that's what impacts the people most immediately around us, it is so adaptable to other provinces and states. And so we do hear from teachers in the U.S. saying, oh, my curriculum says this, what would you suggest? And so while we may not do a post on, hey, the New York curriculum says this, change it like this, there's so many parallels. And What we're really out to do is not prescribe how to do the teaching, but to build up the confidence and the competence of teachers to notice what's not quite right and to give them the permission to adjust it for safety and for actual health benefit of these kids. And so similar to the dietitian world, I don't know in your practice, Diana, a lot of dietitians say, well, I'm hesitant to just give you a meal plan because the day you run out of avocados, the meal plan won't work anymore. And so really similar in the teaching world is we're hesitant to just write lesson plans because if if we don't start to talk to teachers around, like you can start to notice what's not right and start to teach the kids because it's so much more than the lesson. It's the lunchroom, it's the hallways, it's the parent volunteers and really about creating that whole culture change, not just the curriculum points. Yeah, absolutely. And while we're on this note, I imagine that my listeners might have some idea of the, you know what we're talking about in terms of like what's wrong 
wrong from the last episode I published with Amy Geis about <laughs> diet culture in preschool. But why don't you just give us just some examples of the types of assignments and lessons that you are seeking to address so that we have a little context on like, I don't want to say what what's going wrong, but like, you know, what may not be the very best way to educate uh, kids about food. Yeah, that's great. And your podcast with Amy was amazing. If, oh, you, if people haven't listened to it, you should listen to it. And one of the things I'll say is what you and Amy discussed around the preschool curriculum and the preschool assignments is so transferable. It's not that different for a good part of the school year. Um, or the school grades. And so what we do see, so I'll give you some examples from the Ontario curriculum, but what I'm hoping to do, and, and maybe later on in this talk, we'll talk about what to look for in your own personal curriculum, or in your own state curriculums. But some of the things that we see, um, so it broke my heart to hear that that was happening in preschool, because oh my goodness, preschool students do not have the critical thinking skills to separate anything into two groups. But that happens kindergarten, grade one, grade two, grade three. It happens all the way through elementary. It is one of the most popular assignments. In later elementary, grade four, five, six up here, we start to see things like evaluate food labels, how to read food labels, things like that. We see that as an assignment. And what we do at Dietitians for Teachers is we've started to look at, well, what does the curriculum actually say? How did we get from what the curriculum said to this assignment? Because it does differ by teacher, et cetera. And so some curriculums are extremely specific and they say, teach exactly this, teach energy in versus energy out. And some curriculums say things like, explain how healthy eating and activity work together. And it's the interpretation of that and the worksheets that a teacher decides speak to that point that often start to miss the mark. And so, yeah, so for example, the food reading label that comes up in our grade four is it says, describe the nutrients and their importance for growth. And that's about it. It's a two sentence, I think, description. And if you think about that, if you don't have a background in nutrition, which is a science, if you don't have a background in that, the only context you have is your personal lived experience. And so describe nutrients and their importance to growth can go a lot of different directions, right? It can quickly go to if you eat too much carbs and fat, you will gain weight, which is incorrect, right? Or it can go to the direction of what nutrients do for our bodies, not to our bodies. We have to start up thinking that impact means consequence, right? So that's one example that we've seen quite a bit. In high school, similar, we see things like um, apply knowledge of basic nutrition principles and healthy eating to develop a healthy eating plan. And there's single words that tend to connect for teachers that mean plan equals diet plan, meal plan, calorie plan, healthy eating plan could mean sitting down together, cooking more often, trying new foods. It doesn't have to mean calories and carbs and macros and all these sort of things that even our high school students might be seeing on social media. We don't have to reinforce it in the school environment. Yeah. And so as Amy and I discussed at the preschool age with the black and white thinking, the danger of categorizing this food is healthy and this food is unhealthy is that a child that young has the potential to say, well, I, I can never put something unhealthy in my body or I am bad if I put something unhealthy in my body. What are the dangers in the later elementary and, and middle and high school ages? So... The dangers really are, Diana, that they're starting to reinforce disordered eating behaviors. And the emphasis that we put on disease prevention related to obesity and diabetes versus disordered eating is out of balance. And we know that according to some of the national eating disorder groups, the things that contribute to eating disorder development are body dissatisfaction. So if we're promoting that thin is better and thin is healthier, uh-oh, <laughs> we've just shown that anyone who doesn't live in a thin body. So like, think about Google Slides this year. Think about all those memojis of teachers. They're all hyper, hyper thin. The biggest body size in those cartoon teachers is really quite slim still. 
experience with dieting, experience of weight stigma. Certainly there's genetics and family history involved with eating disorder, but low self-esteem. So if we're teaching kids like from early, early ages, that if you eat this, you are bad, that's self-esteem. And so as we get into those older ages, we are really thinking about how do we keep these kids safe from disordered eating, which is a mental health condition with a very high risk rate and is, is quite, it's quite dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree. And there's there's one statistic, I don't know it off the top of my head, but it, it's, it's floating around out there about, you know, the risk of a child developing type 2 diabetes as compared to the risk of a child developing an eating disorder uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, how <laughs> the risk of the eating disorder is actually exponentially Quite higher, higher than, mm-hmm. than the risk of type 2 diabetes, which is not to say that we shouldn't be putting systems and structures in place to help kids embrace a lifestyle that, you know, there's, there's going to be genetics and other factors, but, you know, for what, whatever things they are in control of, yes, sure. But as I think you and I would agree, there is a way to do that without also <laughs> risking the disordered eating. You are always saying on Instagram, you you know that teachers aren't out to no. cause kids to get <laughs> eating disorders. So why do you think these things are written into the curriculum and where are teachers and administrators coming from when planning these assignments? You know, what what leads to them assigning calories in cal- versus calories out or, you know, healthy versus unhealthy? That's such a great reflection. And thank you for saying it because we cannot say it enough. Um, we are not like dietitians for teachers as an organization, as a business, as human people, we are not anti-teacher at all. We, we think teachers are amazing. And a lot of it comes from the pressure to know everything about everything. So like, think about a teacher's day, like, you know, grade six, for example, they might be teaching aviation one minute and then something else in, you know, math and then going right into sexual health that might include, you know, how to nourish your body for proper development. And oh my gosh, like that is so widespread. And as dietitians and healthcare providers, if you tend to work or if you happen to work in a generalist field like family practice, knowing a lot about a lot is a huge weight to carry. And so some of it comes from just needing to grab resources quickly. So things that have been handed down. The other thing in Ontario anyway, is health is not one of the standardized testing topics. So I would say the priority around resource development for schools is probably in the more evaluated topics like math and science and those types of things. So health is seen probably almost a bit like an extra and You've seen it, Diana. I've seen it in everybody eats, right? And so we all do carry with us some knowledge about food and nutrition. But the question is, is that the knowledge that goes to kids or is that adult level knowledge? And really starting to draw the distinction of what do we teach kids? Because we know that actually teaching anything that teaches kids how to diet, like tracking, like comparing ourselves to other people increases not only the risk for eating disorder, but it increases the risk for obesity because weight cycling and all these types of things that we know. So we're actually working against ourselves. So I want to encourage teachers, like give yourself grace here because we are all swimming in the same soup. Diet culture is everywhere. Social media is everywhere. And it is just so pervasive right now and always. And when it's a topic like health and, you know, it may be a small unit for you having another teacher say, Hey, here's a great resource. Oh, thank you. You just took a weight off my shoulder. I don't have to maybe do that lesson planning the same way I would have, cause I'm going to use yours. Cause I trust you and you're a great teacher. And you said this, this video is safe. And when you take the time to watch that video, it's not safe. Oh no, now I got to find a whole new lesson. Like that's a ton of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I am really interested in what you said earlier about when you don't have a degree in nutrition science, as we would not expect teachers to do, (laughs) uh, then it, it is only from your personal experience that you can have any context for this. And one thing is that everybody eats and everybody has more or less an understanding of this has protein, this has fat, this has, this is a vegetable, this is a fruit. But also 
with us all swimming in the soup of diet culture, <laughs> and especially with a lot of teachers being women, right, and being even more subject to the pressures of diet culture. What are teachers bringing in from their own personal experience with eating food, not eating food, and how does that trickle down to kids in ways that, I mean, parents do this too, in ways that we're not actually conscious of in the front of our mind. And people like you and I are doing work to raise awareness of that so that teachers for their kids and parents for their their children can carve a way forward that is more positive for the kids. So we bring with us, all of us, dietitians too. And, and I think this is an important moment, Diana, to say that dietitians have, like there's actually research on dietitians have higher rates of eating disorder because guess what we get taught really early on? How to count calories. So we know this is coming with teachers. We know this is coming with them into the school. But while I've seen teachers make incredible strides in like, what is the lesson plan they're actually teaching? They're not doing the sorting anymore. Sometimes what's not changing as quickly or not as ready to be changed is social chit chat. The norms that we set around social chit chat around like, oh my gosh, you lost weight. You look so great. And that's in the hallway or that's in the back of the classroom between two educators while the kids are working on an assignment and that's being overheard. What is coming into the schools is volunteers and lunchroom monitors and thank those people so much for their volunteer time or people doing that work because teachers need breaks. But again, the more people coming in with their own personal experiences and translating those to kids, and it's not, I'm not going to say like you can never have those conversations. There's a lot of dietitians doing that work with adults. So if you are hearing this and you think, gosh, I might need to work on my own relationship with food. How I would encourage you as a teacher is to say, you just need to know it's there. We need to name it. And then we can be doing work on ourselves, but also we can be really conscious of intentionally changing it for the kids. So separating that kid work and the adult work and those kid messages. Yeah, definitely. And I get the sense that when just thinking of the assignment that Amy's kid got, you know, healthy versus unhealthy, when you are not following an account like Dietitians for Teachers and you're not really just invested in helping kids in this way, not because you don't want to, but because you don't even know that it's a thing. Uh, when you assign something like a healthy versus unhealthy, is is your own, like if you're, you yourself are trying to avoid carbs, <laughs> does it feel like teaching this to kids is a positive thing? Because I got a lot of feedback on that episode with Amy of, you know, oh, my kid got an assignment like that, but you know, I thought it was fine because, you know, I'm trying to eat healthier. I want my kids to eat healthier. And without recognizing the stages of cognitive development for kids, it can seem perfectly normal. It can, right? And that is diet culture at work, right? So I think the biggest permission slip here is, is again, to come back to that, what is adult content and what is kid content? So yes, I think a lot of adults have relationships with food that need work and support. And there's so many people doing that work. But I think what we need to be recognizing is we need to know that that is not helping kids. It's not supporting health. And we know that we know that actually, and it, it's around that switch in that in that learning age that the peer influence is really important. But actually, if you label something as unhealthy, it becomes more appealing. There's there's some there's some evidence on that, and we know that from teens, from young preteens, right? If you tell them not to do something, oh my gosh, watch out! And we need to remember that the definition of healthy, like we have narrowed that way too much to mean what food and we have forgotten and we have to give ourselves permission to come back to not just what but how and where and with whom are we eating and having these experiences because health is so 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 much more than what macronutrients are landing on my plate and that is teaching dieting and we know that teaching dieting is not conducive with long-term health. Yeah, absolutely. So when a teacher is considering an assignment that will address the curriculum that they are supposed to be teaching, what would be some warning signs? Like if they get this worksheet from another teacher or wherever, what would be some warning signs that this lesson is not going to teach kids about food in a positive way? Great question. So 
the very first thing is to take a good look at your curriculum. Reach out if you want to chat about it. Like we, we, I will message with you a little bit. That's fine because some of them are so prescriptive. It is harder to work around. However, if you are privileged enough to have a vaguer curriculum, I want you to take a minute and kind of look for those words like plan and healthy and even the word diet. Diet to a lot of us who have lived with diet culture means restrict. Diet, the actual definition means the food we eat. So again, kind of take a minute, look for those hot words like healthy, diet, plan, choose, and think about like, what is the separation between like, what would diet culture want me to do with this? And what would sort of more neutral teaching want me to do this? When you're looking at the handouts that you might have been gifted in like a resource finder or videos that even teachers promote, this kind of thing, what you're looking for. So the primary level, sorting into two groups, big red flag, any two groups. A term I use on the the Instagram a lot is wellness washing. Sometimes every day, good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, treat. Um, and then a new one is fun food. Like, okay. Any sorting like that is diet culture. Kids, just like Amy said, um, black and white, right? Like that's that concrete thinking. They cannot separate the minutiae. You don't eat broccoli every day and neither do I. Calling broccoli and everyday food is confusing. <laughs> and then it makes them feel bad on a day they get offered a cupcake, Right. In the virtual world, look at the visuals. Um, I was just looking at one actually from an Ontario resource and it's talking about food literacy and all the cartoons on the first few pages are so thin. Like they are, they're cartoons, but they're so thin. And then teachers speaking about them are speaking about like, don't forget to consider that people have different body sizes and da da da. But if our visuals aren't matching our words, uh oh. Um, comparing people to animals, um, oh. don't, <laughs> um, yeah. So like, like sloths and like things like that, that might be slower and tired because they didn't get their energy or, mm. you know, spirity rabbits that are fast because they ate all the right healthy food. Like watch for visuals like that. Uh. Stock art, even like if you're looking to, to create your slides, like watch out for things like where the the unhealthy person is heavy, their clothes don't fit. Like you've seen these pictures, right? Like of the belly sticking out and they're holding soft drinks and things like that. That's a huge, huge red flag that that is not a safe activity. And I know teachers are pressed for time and it's like, I don't have time to find something different. Really encouraging you to, to, to carve that time out. Any activities, especially in the older grades, although it is, it's in the kindergarten curriculum here as a suggestion to track vegetable intake no. and I know it's just a suggestion in the curriculum but to track vegetable intake and then make a bar graph out of it compared to your peers like if you are tracking or comparing to peers or other people like just hard stop like that is dieting yeah, absolutely. We got um, one comment from a participant in the Messy Intersection Facebook group that yeah. her uh, preschool age kid was given two brown paper bags and one was like healthy Harry and junk food Jane. And I guess whatever the kid was eating throughout the day, they were supposed to also feed that food respectively to the brown paper bag that it <laughs> correlated with, <laughs> um, which seems like it's it's like, you know, my fitness pal for kids, basically, you know, of, yeah. So, so that's pretty crazy. So one other thing, especially for the older grades, where you're starting to critically evaluate and, the, and those skills are developing for kids is avoid value, value and morality. So what I mean by that is, so say <laughs> curriculums love food labels. I don't know why I don't even read food labels that often, but they want kids to be reading a food label. Okay, fine. Some of the curriculums make us do this. But if the point of reading that food label is then to decide if a food is good or bad or healthy or unhealthy, it's gone one step too far. So you can, teachers can adjust these activities to be like, okay, we have to teach you how to read a food label. Which one has higher fiber? And what does fiber do for our body? But stop at the point where you're picking which food is 
better or more valuable or special because <laughs> that's where things get really ugly in the dieting world is we're we're putting too much morality on certain foods so you could certainly do which one has more protein if you have to and and stay away from some of the ones that are connected to dieting you could do which one has a higher percentage of calcium calcium's not connected to dieting as much right protein carbs macros those are higher so that would be a good one there yeah definitely Okay, there's, there's a bunch of stuff about the principles that probably are being taught in school that are not constructive to kids developing a healthy relationship with food. So I imagine as a person running an Instagram account with all kinds of positive things that teachers can do and say and assignments that they can give their, their students to help them develop a healthy relationship with food and avoid getting you know stuck in the way that diet culture has us teaching these things. I imagine you have some guiding principles that you want teachers to, and parents when they're they're looking at what their kids are being assigned, right, to keep in mind. So, you know, what would some of those be? So one of the big things is that health is so much broader of a definition than body size or what food we eat and how and how much we move. And so one of the biggest values and principles of dietitians for teachers is supporting teachers to expand that definition of health in their health teaching. Certainly, we have a harm prevention approach around eating disorders, which um, we probably don't say the words eating disorders on the Instagram account a lot. I'd say a lot of schools are still, you know, we call it social emotional learning, things like that. Mental health is still heavily stigmatized. And what needs to be known about eating disorder is it's not it's not a food problem. It's a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mental health uh, issue that needs treatment in the same importance that, and by treatment, sorry, I mean consideration in schools, the same importance level that we, we talk about other mental health conditions and wellness. The other principle that we really talk about is food neutrality. Food neutrality, meaning that food, no one food is better than another food. There are not empty calories and rich calories. A calorie is a calorie is a calorie. (laughs) Um, All foods have nutrition. They have different nutrition, but all foods have nutrition. And that making a space where you're separating the value and the morality off of food is actually far more conducive to health and healthy relationships with food for kids than teaching them the the dieting rules that we all that we think health means and the biggest principle of dietitian for teacher or maybe not the biggest one but the one we believe in and really around our philosophy for working with teachers is we believe in the power of teachers we believe that teachers are and educators are trusted adults in these kids' lives. And so we don't do a lot of talking directly to students because that would be, you know, me talking to 30 kids, but a teacher is going to talk to 30 and then 30 more and 30 more and 30 more. And so the ripple effect, the impact that teachers can have by challenging the way they think about this, challenging the way that they put lessons together, like, it's just so exciting to think about how many kids could be positively impacted because teaching is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I'm uh, really excited maybe for this uh, coming school year when kids will be back in classrooms, hopefully, and be able to make those connections and, you know, really get the educations that they deserve because not all, but some virtual learning hasn't, has been failing, you know, kids and what they need. And, you know, we're, we're all in a tough situation here. Teachers in particular, like, you know, you and me as dietitians, we have been able to uh, adapt the way that we work. It's not too different, but oh my gosh, I give the teachers so much credit for all the work they've done this past year. So uh, if we have any teachers listening here, do you have any suggestions for the types of assignments? Like, have you seen any assignments that you were like, yes, this hits the nail on the head. We need more of this. Like what, what are we looking for here? Yes. So we have this fabulous group of teachers that interact with the account and with dietitians for teachers, which we just love. Um, please keep sending us the, the awesome things you're doing. We've seen teachers shifting to more hunger and fullness cues and spending a lot more time on that and a lot less time on what foods are what. So we love that for the especially for the little ones. We heard from a grade six teacher that upended her whole health section and decided to do a 
virtual taste test challenge, challenging everybody safely, of course, without exploring allergies and things like that or exposing to allergies to ask their parents or their their adults to help them get access to a food they haven't liked before, or they don't think they like. And they did a, a tasting challenge together and the teacher participated as well. And she told us that more kids had their cameras on that day than anything else she's taught virtually because it was fun. We've seen teachers using yet language, more yet language, um, and telling stories about themselves. So for those of you listening who aren't quite there yet yourselves, like you're, you don't like a lot of foods, you're not ready to kind of open this up, you could say, hmm, I don't like that yet. And, get, and really starting to model that language for kids instead of saying, well, broccoli's healthy, so you have to, you have to eat it saying, well, I don't like broccoli yet, but maybe I'll try it. Maybe I'll try it again. No, I still I still don't like it. That's okay. I'll try again another time. So we've heard of a lot of teachers doing that sort of thing. Food exploring is like one of the best things and you can do it all grades. So this grade six teacher did food exploring. What does it taste like? What's the texture? What's the smell? What's the color? How could I change it? So that's been really cool. And then we see more and more teachers using food cross-curricularly in safer ways, like doing science with food and just more exposure, because we know that exposing kids to more food will increase their, their number of likes down the road. So we don't always have to teach them that you have to eat Brussels sprouts because they're good for you. We expose them to Brussels sprouts. We do something, we learn about how they grow. Actually, if you haven't seen how Brussels sprouts grow, Google it, it's so cool. Things like that. So we're hearing a lot about that and cooking. We hear teachers talking about doing like little cooking lessons and measuring and 30 mils of something or half a cup and like integrating it into math work. So we are seeing a shift and a change and it's so exciting. And that's really awesome. So thinking about the way that teaching about food can intersect with other areas of the curriculum, I know that one thing that stands out to a lot of parents and probably teachers as well is what different foods or different nutrients do for our body. So like vitamin A is in carrots can can help you see, right? And, you know, so if you're also teaching an anatomy lesson or whatever, but there is a little bit of a danger there with the black and white thinking that, you know, if I don't eat carrots, I won't be able to see anymore. What just what is your overall take on those kinds of lessons? That's a great one. Like, I think we have to be really careful. I think you hit the nail on the head, Diana, that it, it's probably closer to diet culture than not. I think it's a stepping stone for some if they're used to teaching the kind of good food, bad food rules that saying vitamin A helps with vision, vitamin A is in carrots. You're right. It could easily slip to, well, if I don't like carrots and she only, and you know, my teacher, my, my madame only taught me about carrots as the only source of vitamin A, then I'm going to feel like I'm going to go blind. So, so we have to be really careful in the younger grades, but I like it in the framework, especially for the older kids, like, you know, older than seven when the concrete starts to shift a little bit. I like it for the concept of what food does for our body, not as a consequence. So sugar, for example, oh my gosh, this is a big one. Sugar is often talked about as a negative thing, but sugar makes food taste sweet sweetness increases our palatability of food. We like eating food that is sweet. Sugar gives us energy to move. Sugar gives us fast energy. If we need to do something quickly, we need energy right away. If we shift that thinking from to our body to for our body, the lessons change. And I think we can actually take out the for our body because if anybody's thinking that kids don't know that, they're getting it everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with sugar in particular. I mean, I I know two and three year olds that are being taught about sugar, and not in the positive way that you're you're thinking about. But you know, we do know that as kids grow and develop, their cognitive development goes along with them, and at some point, calories, fat, <laughs> protein, uh, the macronutrients does become just 
basic knowledge that's important to have. Is that appropriate at the high school level? Or like, when is it appropriate for kids to learn about this? I think it depends. So do they have the capacity to understand it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially at the high school level, they have the ability to understand these complex topics. They do complex thinking in science and biology and chemistry and all these things. They can understand it. I think what we need to get our heads around is what purpose are we teaching it with? Are we teaching it because we want to control body size? Are we teaching it because we think knowing these rules helps with health? Because they don't always, right? They actually contraindicate health by pushing teens into disordered eating patterns, things like that. So are we teaching it from a biochemical level and what is a calorie and what does it do for our body and how do calories work? Cool. Do it. If we're teaching it as a, if you eat too much calories, you will look like this stock art photo. No, even though they're in high school, that is still a damaging message. So I think what we need to come back to is the purpose of the lesson, because in Ontario, the nutrients are not in the high school curriculum. It does not say to teach calories and carbs and protein and macros and all these things. The high school curriculum has really cool statements, but they're being interpreted that way to teach in the calories and carbs or students are asking about it. So the resource for teachers to be is how to respond to these teens to make sure that they're getting the reframe because they're getting that message from social media. They're getting that message maybe from home. They're getting that message from TV, uh, Netflix. All these people are already telling them weight is bad. Bigger bodies are bad. Food leads to bigger bodies. We do not need to teach them that. We need to teach them how to see it and reject it. Okay, you just took the next question that I was thinking of out of my mouth. It's like, we, we know the importance of teaching critical thinking, especially at the mm-hmm. high school level. So yeah, to what degree should teachers be, I, I hate to say should, te- I don't get to tell teachers what they should and shouldn't do. Would it be valuable for teachers to proactively teach critical thinking about diet culture at the high school level? Yes, and earlier than the high school oh. level. Uh, I actually had a, teach, or had a conversation in messages just yesterday, actually, with someone asking, showing a problematic page from a children's book and saying, well, how would I edit this to read it to my kids? And the, my first question was, how old are your kids? And so she's got pretty young kids. So we said, yeah, just say different words when you read it. And it was a, an image of a cartoon character being weighed at the doctor's office and then being prescribed exercise to deal with the results from the scale. But what I said to her is soon you'll be able to say, hmm, you know, some books and some messages that we hear and some TV shows are going to tell us that bigger bodies are bad and smaller bodies are good. And, you know, we can start to build the language in kids that that's not true and that they are allowed to reject those messages, even if they're hearing them from people that they trust, like teachers, like TV, like social media accounts that they really like, like influencers, people like that. We need to be giving permission to these teens and kids and and young adults that they can say no to these things and push back. And there are different programs and curriculums developed that actually encourage high school teachers to spend more time here naming diet culture and naming body image challenges. So the kids know that they can say no to that. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm so curious Mm -hmm. about that. And I would love to learn more. And maybe I would love to do a whole episode on especially the language that we can use, since I mostly focus on moms of fairly young kids, the language we can use on that. Because I've seen that my kids watch, gosh, they watch this one YouTube show where the main character loves candy and the other characters are telling him he has to go exercise to earn all that candy. And I'm just like, like I'm doing the mind blown emoji like right now. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, we have talked a lot about what teachers can do, but I I do suspect that the majority of my audience today is not teachers, that they are Mm -hmm. their parents. So what would your advice be for parents whose children might receive these assignments, either once they, they have received the assignment, or is there anything that parents could or should do? Are they staying in their lane if they do proactively uh, talk to their kids' teachers about this kind of stuff? I love that you just said staying in your lane, and I hate it at the same time. Uh Parents and teachers, I don't know about you, but I see in every message home from my school at the beginning of school year that I am a partner in my child's education. I know every teacher I've ever worked with emulates that. 
what I would encourage you to do, it is easy to get really fired up. Dietitian moms are some <laughs> some of the strongest in this regard. It's so easy. I've been there. I've been fired up when I've seen some of this stuff come home or I've heard my kids coming home saying some of the, these comments of, oh, well, I shouldn't eat that because that will, you know, I won't be healthy anymore. My advice is to kind of take a calming moment and remember that teachers are there for good. They do this work just like healthcare professionals. They're in this field because they are caring, compassionate people. They care about kids and health. Um, they just maybe have the wrong information. They maybe have their own stuff going on. And they maybe haven't really been given the opportunity to reflect on this element of the curriculum because so much effort and emphasis is put on the other sections. So kind of encouraging parents to kind of take a minute and just reset a little bit that this is probably not done with the intention to cause harm. From there, dietitians and health professionals, we are quick to email with a whole list of resources and references. And this is why you shouldn't be doing this. And da, 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 da. don't do that, <laughs> especially this year with teachers being observed mm. 20, like all day, every day through the virtual learning world. There's been a lot of feedback to teachers this year. Teachers are burnt out. So is everybody, but teachers especially are burnt out and they're hyper-monitored by parents, everything. There is commentary coming into teachers from all avenues. Try and avoid the long email and instead reach out and say, hey, can we have a chat? I'm curious. I have questions about it. Concerns about is even fair to say about the lesson that was said the feedback that we've gotten from teachers is that is so much easier to respond to, to meet a parent in a conversation than to open an email to a list of complaints. And when the year has been stacked against so many people and it's been so hard, it's easy to kind of put your barriers up when you get a written, itemized, referenced list of feedback instead of a, hey, I'm really worried about this. I'm wondering, is there anything I can do to support a shift here? Can we talk about it? People say, oh, can I, I'm just going to send your account to my teacher. And I say, well, actually, just hold on that. Make that the second email. Huh. Um, so have the conversation person to person first, caring human to caring human first. And then if they're open to the further learning, then you can send resources and different things. So do I want you to share our account from the rooftops? Please, but do it in a really respectful way. The other thing is you may not meet a teacher or you may meet teachers who aren't ready. They really, really believe that that's the way to teach health. And that's where you might need to shift and do some of the unteaching at home saying, you know, we love our teachers, we love people, but all people believe different things. And you will hear in your lives adults saying things that don't sound the same way that we would talk about it here at home. And I want you to know you can come and talk to me. We're going to talk about that and I will help you understand what our family believes about that. And so sometimes we just need to take that home and do some of that work and unteaching at home. Which is teaching kids critical thinking, right? So right. bonus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, especially given how uh, much teachers will have on their plates heading into the 2021 school year. Is it appropriate to pro be proactive about this or do we kind of cross our fingers if the assignment gets assigned and then maybe address it at that point. And if it does get assigned, okay, it might be a little bit stressful for us, but we're going to take that opportunity to teach our own kids the critical thinking about it. Yeah, I have so many thoughts here. One, in the US, I know school's finishing right now. Yeah. Um, and teachers need the break. So I think even if you know who next year's teacher is, maybe wait. But we really need to let teachers recover and recharge. And some of them choose to do learning over the summer, but some of them don't. Um, and that needs to be respected so that we have energized, impactful teachers in August and September. The other thing I'll say is it depends on your relationship with the school. I, I shared a story in our Instagram about a teacher, an educator who had a really great conversation with a superintendent around, could we make some changes? And the superintendent was really res responsive. If you've got a great relationship with the teacher, or the health teacher, or the principal, or someone in the school that you think it would be a safe conversation and not a threatening, combative one, absolutely go for it. There's not really a rule here. 
But what I would say is it's kind of a person-to-person conversation. Um, if there's any teachers listening, I would say this is probably not a topic for an all-staff call right at, right now, because the diversity of opinions about this will be wide and the change in really contentious issues is slow. And that's okay. If you're a parent and you're on the PTA and you kind of want to talk to the whole PTA, but it's same thing, you are going to come up with different parents that have different beliefs about this and you want to avoid conflict because when we get into conflict about things, we dig in. We want to make safe space. So how can we gently start to approach, hmm, I wonder if we did this differently or what if we did a library edit or what if we started to kind of think about providing new books for the school instead of taking away. You can approach it in different ways. Yeah, that's so good. That's really valuable. And I plan to come back to this maybe a little bit closer to the start of the school year in the U.S. at least when uh, we're all going to be we're all going to be hoping for a better school year, I think. So, (laughs) okay, so Gwen, this has been so great. I really appreciate uh, your insight and your expertise. What is next for Dietitians for Teachers? What are you doing right now? What kind of resources do you have? How do you plan to grow? Oh my gosh, thank you for asking that. And please give me a little bit of grace because we started this just in the winter of this year. And as I said at the beginning, a bit of an experiment just to sort of see, is this what people want to be talking about? And yes, it is. So we are like, it's going to continue. We have started doing some learning sessions for educators. We've run one, which was great. And we got feedback. We're going to adjust it and try some different things. We're going to stay active on social media. And one of the things that you can see more of it, we are starting to produce more resources and support that way. You can find some of our resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. But again, it's a a bit of a slow rollout because we're still kind of figuring things out. So what I would say to you, Diana, is I'm pretty flexible. Like if people have ideas of how we can show up to support teachers, school communities, parent communities, let me know because I'd love to hear it because that's the number one thing for us. We want to make sure it's useful. I do not want to spend any time spinning wheels. It's not helpful. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so everybody go and follow Dietitians number four, teachers on Instagram. Check out the content, share it, message Gwen if you have Mm -hmm. feedback, if your own kids are are getting uh, certain kinds of assignments. I just love that this is a resource that's available. And uh, I I know because I I know you and Terry through Instagram mostly that you you weren't necessarily going to start this, but it just seemed like there was such a a need for it and that pushed you forward. And and look where you are. Like it it really is. It is. It is such uh, a need that you're filling. And I, I just love that. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today to, to share even more of your wisdom and insight. So thank you so much. Anytime, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Gwen. I have been really encouraged by the response to this topic and how invested you all are as parents to basically participating in a culture shift in how we educate our kids around food. So the conversation doesn't end here. It's going to stay afloat on social media. Of course, I hope you'll go follow Gwen at Dietitians for Teachers. And then over on my account on Instagram, which is Baby Steps Dietitian, I will be expanding on this conversation. I do that with every episode and I always really get a lot of insight from the conversations people start about how they've experienced the issue at hand. So I'll be posting a little on that right now in early summer of 2021 as this episode is fresh, but I also plan to be back at it as we head into the new 2021 school year in the fall in terms of some language to talk to your teachers about this topic if it comes up. So links to both of those accounts will be in the show notes. You will also find a link there to the Messy Intersection podcast community on Facebook, which is a great place to have even more in-depth conversations about the topics I share on the show. And then lastly, I know I don't remember to do this enough, but if you have gained some benefit from this episode and the previous one with Amy, I would really love for you to leave a review in your podcast player. You probably hear this on any show you listen to. Reviews really help with the show's search rankings. And of course, I just really love to read your feedback and know that that uh, the work I'm doing here is making a difference. So thank you uh, for the review that you're about to leave. And thanks again for tuning in. And until next episode, embrace the mess.